Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier and I'm one of your co-hosts of this channel. I hope you're safe and well wherever you are and thank you so much for joining us today. On our episode today, we are joined by Amanda Lenzillo, who is a lecturer in South Asian history at Brunel University, London, England, to discuss her new book, Pious Labor, Islam, Artisanship, and Technology in Colonial India. It is published by the University of California Press in 2023 and is available online for free as an open access book. Pious Labor focuses on the late 19th and early 20th centuries Northern India and working class people who asserted Islamic piety through their trade while responding to industrial change especially the development of new technologies and, again, state and colonial projects. Indian Muslim artisans, such as those who worked in electroplating or as stonemasons, tailors, carpenters, or woodworkers, used their craft, labor, class, and religion to establish prophetic lineages to their crafts and imbue it with Islamic piety in response to struggles of class and caste hierarchies and broader fears of disenfranchisement. For instance, we see this with electroplating and its ties to um, the prophet David or Daoud and connections to alchemy through Sufism. Lenzel masterfully draws out these stories from Urdu technical manuals and oral histories of artisans themselves, and in the process challenges us to think more capaciously about Islamic piety through the economy of labor, but also class and technology. And importantly, our approaches to the histories of Islam in South Asia and beyond. This book will be of interest to those who think about religious economy, religion and capitalism, religion and technology, religion and empire, but I think also those who are invested in Islam and South Asia, and much more. In our conversation today, we spoke about the origins of Lenzillo's project, some of the challenges of doing archival work, especially in very different cities, and technology, tradition, and gender anxieties in relation to this conceptual paradigm she develops known as artisan Islam, and much, much more. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Amanda Lenzillo about her new book, Pious Labor, Islam, Artisanship, and Technology in Colonial India. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast. Um, How are you doing today? 
I'm good. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to, to, to have the chance to talk to you about my book and very excited. I'm very excited as well because um, we're here to talk about your book, Pious Labor, Islam, Artisanship and Technology in Colonial India. It was both a book that like regionally and geographically was familiar, but in terms of like the actual themes of labor, it was very distinct and I learned so much. So I'm really excited to kind of process that with you. Um, as you know, we have a tradition in the new books in Islamic Studies podcast to know a little bit about who you are and what your intellectual journey is. So can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, what led you to this topic of being in interested in labor in, in historical India, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of, you know, as these things often are, one of these evolving stories of developing interests, um, a bit of archival serendipity or a lot of archival serendipity, um, and then eventually realizing what actually the motivating questions were that were pushing me to write about these topics um, in the first place. Um, so to start like from the very beginning, uh, I finished the last two years of high school in India. And after that, my, my biggest regret was really not learning South Asian languages. Um, and I think that really pushed me to study Persian and Urdu in addition to history as an undergraduate. Um, but at that point, I was more interested in the early modern um, questions around manuscript cultures and knowledge production. Um, but even as an undergraduate, I think uh, when I was spending time in Lucknow for Urdu classes, I, I had my bicycle and I would go around the city and I got really interested in urban industrial workshops, um, why they would cluster together in certain areas, the tools that people were using. Um, so maybe some of this was like already percolating uh, at that early stage. Um, but I think an, an early turning point for me was I did this summer fellowship at the Library of Congress during my master's. Um, and I was working there on developing a hand list mostly of Persian lithographs from India. Uh, and what I was really struck by was questions about how these books were made, um, who participated in their production. Um, to me, it seemed like this just like fascinating space of producing a printed book that you know, looked in many ways like a manuscript. Um, so I was really interested in, in who was involved in that and, and how that worked. Um, and then when I started my PhD, my advisor, I think, really pushed me to think about some of those questions more broadly um, and pointed out that a lot of the communities that I was already interested in were practicing these forms of artisanship. Um, but then, of course, there's the problem, I think, of the archive. And when I first started my preliminary dissertation research in 2016, uh, which was on the back of another round of language classes in Lucknow, um, I was not very excited by what I was finding in this sort of colonial state archive. I wasn't sure how to get to the questions that I was interested in um, through the colonial state archive. And so a friend suggested that I visit Rampur. Um, so I took a train there. I spent a week at the massive Reza library, but also this smaller Salat public library. Um, and that's where I started to come across these various types of like artisanal technical writing. Um, not only the artisan technical manuals that I discuss in the book, uh, but other types of like industrial compendia that were maybe aimed at members of, of the middle class as well. And so I sort of realized that I, I had something there. And I, I guess I started this like multi-year process of visiting um, all of these different small public libraries that held these books. Um, 
but I think also even through my dissertation, I was really struggling with how to position these materials and like what questions to ask about them. Um, so in the dissertation, I focused more on questions of patronage um, and shifting artisan patron relations. And I was especially interested in, in princely state patrons, which of course comes up, um, especially like in the last chapter of the book, uh, but isn't really the main focus of the book. Um, so after I finished my, my dissertation, which was April, 2020, like peak pandemic, and I had a lot of time to sit at home and reread my materials and sort of ruminate on them. And I started playing around with the idea of organizing these stories by trade specifically and thinking more deeply about what story was coming out of, of the text about each trade. Um, and also, I guess, like trying to place art, artisan understandings of Islam at the center, um, rather than understanding them primarily as contingent on elite movements. Um, and so I was really fortunate that the editor of the Islamic Humanities series at the University of California Press, um, Shahzad Bashir, he was really encouraging about that direction um, and, and sort of pushed me to pursue it further. And I also had people during my postdoc as well to sort of push me to start thinking about this uh, within frameworks of the history of technology. Um, and once I sort of realized what stories I was trying to tell, uh, like what stories I could tell um, with these artisan technical manuals and, and community histories, I think the book actually came together um, surprisingly smoothly. Um, yeah. And It's amazing because I think what you've done in terms of focusing on these different trades across the chapters and the stories you're able to tell is just phenomenal. And I'm even more impressed as an ethnographer, because I think anybody doing archival work is impressive, but I think what you were able to take out and engage on the stories you were able to tell is one of the really great contributions of the book and the interventions of the book that we'll talk about. Um, but I imagined, and I hear some of that in your intellectual journey, that there were a lot of struggles with the archives, like, um, and there might have been surprises. Um, you were engaging with Urdu. You also went to a lot of different places. Some of the, you know, each of the chapters sometimes affiliate with different places. Um, so you're dealing with kind of a shifting geopolitical context historically and in the modern period, I'd imagine. So what was yeah. the archival process like? Was there something that really was difficult and challenging or was there like a wonderful moment? I mean, you talk about some moments and even some archivists or librarians who are like, why do you want to see another technical piece? Like, so were there like moments where you're like, oh, you have to really be like, I know what I'm doing or I'm just going to go with it kind of, yeah. Um, I mean, I will say also that I, I have greatest respect for ethnographers and, and I could not do what, what you do. Um, I think it's one of those things where if you learn a methodology, then the other kinds of methodologies seem so incredibly impressive. Um, right. And yeah, um, but in terms of like my archival process, um, I think a lot of it was a mix of sort of getting getting lucky in places and also just like spending the time sitting uh, and waiting uh, and in some cases like literally digging through materials that um, were maybe not cataloged um, or you know held in back rooms um, and, and talking to librarians and archivists um, who were incredibly helpful even if sometimes like a bit 
perplexed about why I wanted to look at things that they didn't think was necessarily like great writing. Um, but I, I think in the end, for me, it largely became about like putting the library that cir the, the writing that circulated in various ways in artisan communities first, um, and then allowing my engagement with the colonial archive or the writings of elite Muslims to follow on that. Um, I think there's like so many materials sitting out there that are are very unconsidered and very understudied, um, mostly in these sort of public and, and regional libraries across India and Pakistan, um, in so many languages, not just in Urdu. Um, but as historians, we're like very often pushed to start with the National Archives or to start at a state archive, um, or maybe at the archives of some of these like prominent Muslim institutions and intellectuals. And I think there's a way to flip that, to, to think first about what sort of local, including non-elite communities we're reading or engaging with. Um, and then once we've done that work to ask whether it fits into uh, or complicates some of the other histories. So I, I would sort of understand that as a big part of my methodology. Um, but I think also in order to do that, I had to realize that even communities that we know didn't have extremely high levels of literacy engaged with texts in various ways. Like I think this was uh, in some ways a stumbling block for me because I'm coming across these texts that seem to speak to these communities, um, but I'm also cognizant of uh, questions of literacy and like how how is a book being used? Um, and it kind of held me up for a while um, until I started noticing that the texts themselves were oftentimes explaining their use to me um, that the authors would say things like, you know, this is meant for those who hear it, um, hear it read aloud, um, or they're using poetry in th these ways where it's intended, you know, clearly intended for forms of memorization. Um, and then the other part, I think, of getting over that hurdle um, in terms of how these materials were used was going and talking to artisans themselves, visiting some workshops, seeing the place of the book, or sometimes even just like a lithograph page, um, the place that that was given in the workshop and talking to people about what types of knowledge still still circulate in workshops um, surrounding like the Muslim passive trades or the prophetic lineages of trades or like prayers you say during your work. Um, and so like, I'm not an oral historian. I'm definitely not an ethnographer, um, but talking to people in places like Lahore and, and Rampur and, and Meerut, I think was really important to realizing that I just hadn't extrapolated wildly from these texts and that there was a place um, for the use and the use of the stories that that they contain. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm quite grateful for the artisans who let me come in um, and, and ask them about, you know, like, are, are these materials types of things that, that you recognize um, and stories that you recognize as well? Yeah. And I, I really love that dimension in your book as well, that you sometimes would go talk to people and they kind of added this other depth to kind of the work that you were doing. But I think the book and you are really sensitive to reception, like, you know, you're trying to decentralize kind of certain class politics um, and literacy itself is like a class reality in some of the like the historical context you're working in. Um, so I was really kind of in interested in reading about how sometimes it was read out loud, like if there was somebody in a particular community and then that re being read out loud and hearing itself was a kind of literacy, which I think is really amazing to think about. Um, so like those kinds of interventions in the book were really, really fascinating and even kind of gave me pause, which I super appreciated. Um, I think a lot of your book hinges on this idea of artisan Islam, and I think that's kind of making a 
part of kind of the broader intervention that you're making. Um, so can right. you walk us through like one of the, this huge pillar in the book of what you are conceptually framing as artisan Islam? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I mean, I think that artists in Islam, the way I'm framing it and the way that I'm using it, because obviously this is, you know, me, the scholar, calling all of these very different practices artists in Islam. And I think in the, the chapters, I tried to be very cognizant of specifying, like, in this chapter, I'm using artists in Islam in, in this particular way, and it's not necessarily the same way that I'm using it in, in other chapters. Um, but I see it as sort of performing two, two roles for us or, or, or um, making, I guess, two interventions for us. Um, and the first is sort of letting us read laborers and their, their technical knowledge into a story of colonial era South Asian Islam and Islamic knowledge. Um, and, you know, this is a field that has often remained dominated um, by studies of theological movements, um, like elite self-fashioning um, and sort of middle-class Muslim responses to colonial modernity. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm sort of placing Muslim artisans um, or artisan Islam um, or Muslim artisan knowledge uh, within histories of South Asian labor and, and technology. Um, and I think that artisan Islam and its influence on uh, the history of, of labor and technology has sort of remained marginal. Um, and, and Muslim artisans, if they've been considered, they're often considered these like sort of complicating figures uh, within a more traditional question of whether religious community identities kind of prevent the cohesion um, of like laboring solidarities in India. Um, so I think to like this first point, um, if you put artisan Islam or laboring communities like at the center of South Asian Islam in the colonial era, um, it kind of forces us to deal with questions that maybe have not been as central to South Asian Islamic studies. Um, so questions like why certain communities get framed as syncretic and others don't, um, or the ways that understandings of syncretism or a lack of orthodoxy are often like external understandings. Um, they're like placed on communities um, that understand and frame themselves as Muslims. And this I think is a big part of what I frame as artists in Islam. It's that these communities are asserting themselves as Muslims and asserting their laboring practices as an Islamic practice. Um, and so even if their practices don't line up exactly with what we see from practices of elite South Asian Muslims, um, I think we need to like take them seriously um, as a practice of Islam. 
Um, and I think it also kind of pushes us to consider experiences of caste in South Asian Islam, uh, the ways that like narratives of descent and lineage, but also like orthodoxy and unorthodoxy are kind of based on caste positionalities that of course don't function in the same way as Hindu caste hierarchies, um, but are still super present um, once you start to like read these materials. Um, and then I guess the other function of artisan Islam or the other intervention that I'm making with the idea of artisan Islam um, in terms of Muslim artisans and their knowledge within histories of South Asian labor and technology. Um, I think that even though in North India, there's been this like broad recognition of how central Muslims were to what we think of as the artisan classes, there's like a lack of integration of Islam into labor history, um, and certainly also into like shifting histories of technologies of production. Uh, so with regard to labor, part of what I'm arguing is that actually Islam became really central to how Muslim workers understood their laboring positions, um, in some cases, even like their working class positionalities, um, that they had like an, an idiom of class and labor that was developed um, through thinking about Muslim pasts and, and Muslim practices of their trade. Uh, and in some cases, I think Islam is actually even contributing to laboring class solidarities. Um, and then there's also the technology portion. And so I argue that in some cases, Muslim artisans um, understood the thing that placed them in these lowly positions in social hierarchies, you know, the fact that they're like doing physical work with their hands. Um, they understand that as like making them masters over technology. Um, and because they think about their technologies and their skills as Islamic, as this like practice of, of artisan Islam, um, knowing these skills and technologies then contributes to making them distinctly pious Muslims. Um, so I think that like the, the framing of artisan Islam um, allows us to get to like how and why uh, these communities are understanding themselves um, as pious Muslims. Um, yeah, I guess, um, and maybe this is, I don't know if this came out in the book or not, but I think I also did want to say that I think like talking about artisan Islam and, and centering the ways that laboring Muslims um, understood their faith and practiced their faith and also were like sort of central to the emergence of um, certain like laboring formations uh, in South Asia um, or in the for formations of like technical knowledge. I think it's also really important today um, because like the spaces allowed for Muslim life in North India have become basically so radically constricted. Um, like I, I think, you know, we're having this conversation the week that the Ramander was inaugurated in Ayodhya, uh, yeah. but also I feel like I wake up every morning and I see like another working class Muslim neighborhood and all the businesses and workshops there has been bulldozed. Um, and, you know, every time I go back to UP, it feels like the spaces of Muslim life are sort of more and more restricted. Um, so I, I think that remembering artisan Islam and arguing that artisan Islam is this like central part of, um, of South Asian history and of Indian history um, is important to like asserting that, you know, Muslims and including working class Muslims like still have a space in, in Indian society today, even if the state would deny it. Mm. And I think 
and you kind of hint at this in the conclusion, it's a huge service that you've done in terms of locating these archives and telling these stories. You've been very intentional about doing that as just this, you know, this important reality that we're receiving the story in, because as you say, of the, the political context we're in and what's happening to, to Muslims today in, in India, especially, right? Um, I'm, I think there's so many amazing moving pieces. And as just as you were talking about describing um, artists and Islam as this conceptual framework that you're kind of weaving through these different um, trades in the book, I immediately was thinking about the electroplating and the alchemy chapter. Of course, I'm going to like focus on some of the Sufi stuff because it was really exciting for me. Um, but I think that chapter particularly really captures some of what you're framing as artists in Islam, especially into kind of the sense of technology, but also then going back to kind of the genealogy too, in terms of what is the, the prophetic tradition of this kind of practice and how is that making um this kind of trade or this practice really in terms like mystical or Islamic or however we're framing it, right? So I hope it's okay if we talk a little bit about that chapter, but I think that chapter and the lithography chapter really doing this work in terms of bumping against technology, in terms of what that does, in terms of the practices of the particular trade and how Muslims are asserting themselves in terms of defining it, but also not denying, I would say, quote unquote, tradition, right? Like the tradition of what Islam means to them. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the electroplating chapter, in the lithography chapter, and like, you know, sort of woven through some of the other chapters as well, um, there's some of this thinking about, you know, what roles might tracing a particular technology or a particular trade um, or particular practice back to an Islamic past do for people, like what, um, particularly in the context of new types of workshops, um, new trades, new technologies, you know, people maybe not necessarily working in their familial workshops anymore, or maybe even migrating um, for, for new types of work. How do people sustain their connections um, to whether it's a Sufi lineage, uh, whether it's, a, you know, a prophetic past, um, or if it's like a, um, a claim on a distinctive type of knowledge, how do people sustain that in, in these new spaces um, and when they're they're working with these technologies. And I think, you know, there is often in sort of um, South Asian history a, a, a pretty strong assumed relationship between artisan communities and Sufi shrines, um, even just like the way that we talk about artisan training um, and uh, like the Ustad Marid relationship um, that sometimes mirrors um, Sufi, Sufi language and Sufi idioms. Um, and I find that a lot in my research, basically people referencing specific saints and shrines as, as part of an Islamic past. Um, and then also the, like the importance, the economic importance of uh, a Sufi um, sources for, for certain artisan communities who might sell their goods and, and come to wider regional attention through an ors. So there's also like this practical element um, of association uh, with, with Sufi pass. Um, and it, but I think it also gets complicated in this like 19th century period um, when so many of these communities are highly mobile, both in terms of like moving across geographies and moving between different types of factories and different spaces of work. Um, and so how do you sustain connections um, to a, a shrine or a lineage in the region that you're from? Um, uh, and then I think also finding 
in you know new shared forms of Muslim past or, or emphasizing specific shared forms of Muslim past that maybe were part of the tradition before, um, but become increasingly important in the context of certain like um, workshops and and factories. Um, so here, I think especially the prophetic past, um, you know, tracing a trade uh, to Dawood in the case of um, electroplaters and, and blacksmiths and, and metal workers more broadly, you know, you have this very strong tradition around um, the prophet Dawood and, and the idea of like um, God revealing the knowledge of, of metalsmithing um, to Dawood um, or Adam in the case of, of scribes, um, you know, these sort of prophetic lineage for, for various trades that then get picked up and um, I think become important parts of um, how a trade is communicated, particularly to to people who maybe are coming into it for the first time. Um, so to, to like allow a space for people to come into the, the Islamic practice of a trade um, or who are like engaging with technologies like electroplating that are, you know, brand new um, and don't necessarily have a, a specific um, past for them yet. Um, but, you know, this is a, a way that they can become incorporated into a broader imagined past. And that's certainly, I think, what happens um, with the alchemy uh, narrative as well. Um, you know, there are obviously these many sort of traditions and ideas surrounding alchemy that are there that are already circulating. And one of the things I point out in the book is that um, initially it seems to kind of be uh, middle class Muslims who are experimenting with with electroplating sort of for purposes of of hobbies and establishing themselves as you know engaged with with new technologies in, in the colonial context they seem to be some of the first people to use the language of, of alchemy for electroplating um but then artisans sort of take it and and run with it and say actually you know we are the new alchemists um like we have access to to this muslim past and, and this muslim status um because we can engage with electroplating in a way that that you you know the middle class the hobbyist um you can't like we can do this with our hands without injuring ourselves um and you know like one of the electroplating manuals actually very clearly says this like he says um you know all of these people are kind of experimenting with electroplating but i've been doing it in in, in my shop in the bazaar for like 10 years or whatever and and i don't injure myself and if you don't do it the way that i'm teaching you how to do it um, you're going to injure yourself. Um, so there's these like claims on, on technologies that are made that way. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things I'm most fascinated by is that the, the prophetic traditions of all of these trades is really amazing to me. Um, and then like, like you said, the, the connection between alchemy and electroplating and metalwork and how that was linked to, um, prophet David for various reasons. And um, you yeah. do this with every chapter and I was just kind of mind blown because I didn't know these kind of prophetic genealogies and the claims made by these, um, uh, artisans. And I think, again, that really adds to kind of the broader argument that you're making about a particular artist in Islam. And then the class location that these individuals are coming from and how they're using prophetic tradition and kind of 
society to assert themselves, to assert their class identity, right? And challenge kind of this elite normativity, which I think is really amazing. The, the second chapter continues this thread, like a lot of these threads again, or the second part. Um, but one of the things you're focused on this one, particularly if I'm correct, is the circulation of the knowledge specifically. And the two kind of uh, trades that you focus on here in chapter three was sewing and chapter four was carpenters and woodworkers. Um, chapter three, I was really fascinated by because this is the chapter that gender comes up and you really um, uh, attune to this in the introduction and say that, you know, there's a particular masculinity or, you know, a maleness tied to some of the authors of the um, treatises or technical manuals you're dealing with. But in chapter three, there's a kind of an interesting dimension happening around sewing. Um, some right. of these are family trades, um, but then um, there's kind of colonial schools that are trying to teach these trades. And so there's like a really fascinating gender component. And I wonder if you could walk us through this a little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I will say, and I, I say this in the book, as you know, that like the voices of women artisans are very much absent from the work that I was able to do. Um, and that's not because there weren't women artisans in almost all of the trades that I look at, even these like sort of very masculinized trades like blacksmithing or carpentry. Um, we know that women were performing various roles, especially in like smaller family workshops, um, but sometimes in industrialized spaces as well. Um, but I think there are these certain, um, as you're alluding to, these like gendered anxieties, both on the part of like male artisans um, and on the part of the colonial state uh, and also elite Muslims who are looking at basically artisan performances of gender and, and maybe critiquing it. Um, so the, as you said, the chapter that I'm really able to go into this in is the chapter on tailors and sewing, uh, basically by reading these two very different texts um, that are both published um, in UP just about two years apart um, in 1907 and in 1909. Um, the um, the authors are, are Khwaja Muhammad, who's a, um, uh, master tailor, it's a, they call him like an expert in the art of sewing. Um, and then Shibiyun Nisa, who's a, um, a, an elite Muslim woman, um, sort of from like an Ashraf um, background, who is um, working at a, a charitable school for Muslim girls, um, and sort of framing her work as a potential for the uplift of um, of Muslim girls um, through sewing, like by by teaching them sewing and embroidering, she's going to like uplift them and ensure that they they don't fall into to poverty um, or to like immoral action or or whatever. Um, and so I think the, the tension here um, is between this male. Muslim tailor um, who's basically seeing what's happening, you know, more broadly in, in society and, and um, this like emphasis on the the training of girls um, in in seamstress work. Um, and, and he's saying, you know, no, you the the colonial state or somebody like Shabiyun Nisa, like you don't actually know how to train a pious tailor. You can only learn to be a pious tailor through an Ustad Marid lineage. Um, you can only learn um, to be a pious tailor if you're like engaging with these like specific prayers um, that that you that I can teach you, um, but that uh, certainly the colonial state can't and even like these elite Muslims who don't have a, a lineage in um, in in tailoring um can't teach you um and and it's explicitly like a 
a male Ustad Marid lineage, right? Um, there's not uh, really a space there um, for seamstresses. And I think there are certain like forms of knowledge about, you know, cutting is often very, like cutting fabric is often very associated um, with male tailors and, and this idea that like men can like design the patterns and maybe women are doing some of the actual sewing. Um, but um, yeah, so that's like sort of in conversation with and intention with um, these like new understandings of um, sewing as a means of, of Muslim uplift, of, of Muslim charity uh, versus the older understandings of like the practice of sewing as a practice of Islam. Um, and, you know, what I, I suspect is that um, Muslim women tailors and, and seamstresses um, who are maybe within some of these artisan families may have had their own traditions of um, tailoring as a Muslim practice and like the sort of integration of of the trade and and belief. Um, but you know we don't have texts from them, so that's just my uh, hypothesis. That's just sort of me reading in something that isn't isn't necessarily found in the archive. Um, and what we do have is somebody like Shabir Nisa, um, who's making these new spaces for um, forms of, of female female labor um, and thinking about you know trades that are appropriate for girls. And obviously, she's also being shaped by the colonial state, um, which and um, which is opening like new technical institutions and is portraying uh, seamstress work as as a trade that is like appropriate for for Indian girls, um, and then also Christian orphanages and charitable schools that are um, gendering trades in specific ways and and sort of pushing the idea that um, that uh, tailoring work is is an appropriate trade um, for for girls. Yeah, this was such a fascinating and messy chapter. I loved it. <laughs> And, and as you said, the gender anxiety was really serious. And so it was fascinating to see the sides that are being pulled. And I think some of this tension also comes up in the third part, but this is more focused from a state perspective, like state projects. Um, and, you know, chapter five talks about the steam engine and chapter six talks about um, the stone masonry um, and like kind of the building of the modern mosque, which I really, really loved. Um, but here you're like more concerned with like state interventions and I guess like patronage that comes from the state that's also informing some of these trade practices, which I think is another important dimension that complicates some of the movement around here. Um, yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I am interested in architecture generally. So the building of the modern mosque and how technology kind of informed um, like what constitutes tradition. Again, similar themes that were coming up in the first part was really resonating but I think here you're also trying to get us to think a little bit about what patronage from a state perspective in light of like the elephant of the colonial presence does as well, right? To kind of our conception of tradition, if I got that right. But I don't know if you wanted to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think in both of those chapters, in, in both chapter five and, and chapter six, there's um, really a focus on the ways that artisans are maybe being pushed down in social hierarchies um, of work. Um, they're not going away, certainly. And, and you know, their the texts are telling us that their their forms of knowledge and their like claims on artisan Islam are staying still staying really 
central and important to the work, um, but they're underneath this like new layer of colonial credentialization, um, which is usually going to upper caste Indians, whether it's Hindus, Sikhs, or 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 Muslims. Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, there's a sense that. Um, they are asserting these traditions in this context where, um, you know, the colonial state is exerting these these really strong pressures to um, to to make these trades their own, right? Whether we're talking about um, uh, boiler making or we're talking about stone masonry, the the colonial state has certain expectations of what um, these trades should look like, what materials you're using. Um, th there's like quite. A lot of restrictions on, um, I guess, what we may think of as like artisan creativity in in these spaces, um, and they are very much underneath um, new forms of technical intermediaries um, that are credentialized by the colonial state, or in some cases by by princely states. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of architecture and what this does to the spaces of architecture and the spaces of what we might think of as like Islamic architecture, um, you still have um, Muslim artisans who are, are working on these projects and have their own understandings of like the meanings of Islamic architecture that I think sometimes go beyond both our sort of contemporary intellectual understandings of what Islamic architecture is, right? For the, the artisans, in many cases, it's not just like a mosque or a shrine um, or a tomb complex or something, um, right? It is the way that you are performing stonemasonry and the fact that you are performing stonemasonry in this sort of pious way and that you are saying the right prayers before you begin work and you're doing it on um, the auspicious days um, and you're taking all of this into account. And so, yeah, well, it's great that if you can work on a mosque or you can work on uh, on a, um, a, a shrine, um, what is often more important is like the way that you are practicing work. Um, but this is happening in a context where you have the colonial state that is very invested in the idea of like, what is Islamic architecture, you know, in, in these like new forms of, um, of drawing on Islamic architecture to assert its own um, uh, relevance to the Indian context and its own authority in the Indian context. Um, and then in this chapter, this is where I'm I'm really looking again at like the princely state context um, and thinking about what the princely states are doing in terms of, of patronizing artisans and their own understandings um, of Islamic architecture that I think are bumping up against the 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 artisans' understandings of what it means to to practice building in in an Islamic way, um, and so the state is very much invested in like building monument. The, these princely states are invested in building monuments to themselves um, and and presenting their states as sort of sites of. Um, Muslim heritage um, or or like reclaiming a, a Muslim past uh, in the colonial context. Um, and so their expectations of artisans are sort of shaped by that that understanding um, and don't necessarily match up with um, artisans' expectations of of the types of work that they should be doing as like a a um, a Muslim stonemason or or a Muslim builder. Um, and then to to complicate that even further, you have this sort of, imposition of these technical intermediaries again, uh, these like uh, middle class and 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 upper caste um, 
uh, sort of people with degrees from uh, engineering schools or, or training in these types of, of colonial state institutions that are being put in these places, even on projects of um, that the, the the princely states are thinking of as representative of Islamic architecture, and that are reshaping the the expectations that um, the artists and workers are are sort of expected to carry out, and I guess pushing artists and workers further downwards in, in these hierarchies of labor. And chapters like this really made me appreciate class solidarity even more so because you realized how complicated and how messy these kind of relationships and practices were because they were being pushed and pulled from various kind of people in powers of authority from the state to other classes. Um, it's really fascinating to really think through um, kind of the practice itself and then the piety of the practice and kind of the intention of the practice, um, which again, I would not have thought about much if it wasn't, um, if I had the opportunity to read your book. Um, did you have a, a trade that you really enjoyed or you gravitated towards, or was there a chapter that you really enjoyed writing? Because these trades are really fascinating. And I imagine as a writer, you had to really go through different spaces to write some of these chapters. And as I was reading, I know I was gravitating towards certain trades just because of myself, but I had this thought that I was like, oh, I wondered if there was a chapter that you found really hard to write or a chapter that you just loved writing because it made sense to you a little bit more, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think when I was in each of them, I was like, this is my chapter, right? <laughs> You know, like, yeah. um, so, so lithography, I've always been really interested in, like I said, like how books are made and how books are produced. And I think, um, you know, when I was writing that chapter, I, I was having this moment of like, there is so much to say about how lithographic presses and, and presses are working as spaces of labor um, and, and how people are understanding those spaces of labor, um, particularly because I think we're in like this wonderful moment in, in South Asian history where there's a lot of focus on um, South Asian book history and South Asian print history, um, but it's tended to be about like how um, editors and publishers understand um, even like the Islamic past of, of the book. Um, and so to have the space to to say, oh, actually, like um, scribes and other lithographic press workers are have their own traditions for this and are, are maybe understanding this differently was really exciting. But then, you know, something completely different, like the, the steam engine chapter um, and talking about Boilermakers, um, you know, when I came across, I think there's a quote in, in the steam engine chapter um, from this like manual on, on how to work with the, the boilers um, and how to sort of repair um, and maintain boilers. Um, and there's this whole long extended comparison of uh, the steam engine or of, of the steam injector to a hookah um, that only actually quasi works um but it's it's an amazing comparison um and i think for me it actually because you know i was trying to write around questions of like embodied knowledge of labor and embodied knowledge of work and that for me i was like oh my god i i understand how embodied knowledge of work and embodied knowledge of labor might have worked right because it's less about actually really detailed ex explanation of how a steam injector works and more about explaining that you understand how a steam injector works because you have encountered a hookah. Um, and so, yeah, I think all of these chapters, um, there were moments where it was like, you know, the stories that these texts are 
um, are telling me are, are so powerful and, and evocative. Um, I think maybe you kind of referenced it, but like the, the sewing chapter, um, there is like a messiness and a complexity to it, um, that I, um, I think that's probably the one that I spent the longest on um, and the one that maybe I still have the most questions about um, in terms of like sorting out what all of these social relationships looked like and what all of these social positionalities looked like, even though it's also one of like the most narrowly focused, right? It's really like about these two texts and putting them into conversation. And I, I think I I felt that reading the chapters because there was like different affective realities of each chapter as a reader, I felt. And so there were certain things that came out um, and it really kind of stuck with me. And I think I really appreciated the book for that. And I'm, you know, we probably can spend hours going into details of all the chapters, but our listeners will have to pick up the book and read it. Um, it's, it's delicious, it's dense, there's so much details and threads in there, and they'll definitely enjoy it. Um, I guess taking a step back, since we swam a little bit in some of the chapters, what, I mean, your conclusion is um, wonderful. It's a beautifully written conclusion, and I really was like, okay, I get, like, there were some really good moments of closure for me, I think, in the conclusion. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit, because I think one of the big pieces was kind of partition, like how I think, uh, you know, as you've read through all of these different trades and you're thinking, oh, you know, this is really beautiful, but what's what's the point of all this? And I think in the conclusion, you really make it clear for us that, oh, there's like some important stuff. And one, I think, is this like huge geopolitical moment and disruption of the partition that has impacted so much of these trades communities. And I think for the second, which most of our listeners hopefully would be attuned to, is kind of like, what does this do for us in terms of thinking about how we study Islamic history in South Asia or like generally Islamic history at all? But I mean, your interest here is in South Asian context. And I think in that way, it, you know, gave me pause in terms of a what, you know, was what is it that I have learned even as a religious studies scholar reading through some of these kind of approaches, um, which is really important. So I wonder if you could talk us through some of the things that you were dealing with in terms of the so what question of your book. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I'll start with like the the partition bit of it, because I think that also came out of like my experiences of research um, and doing research across um, like the India-Pakistan border. I did my dissertation research in India and then a lot of my follow-up research in, in Pakistan and in Lahore. Um, and so I was really thinking about like, Am I am I looking at the the same communities here? Um, how have these communities been disrupted? You know, even when I'm starting to talk to people, if they remember, um, you know, histories that connect them across the border, um, usually from like the Pakistani context, if they have like remembered histories in in the Indian context. Um, but then even like the reasons why these materials are so diffuse um, and and sometimes so difficult to access, um, you know books published in Lahore sitting in in an archive in an archive in some place like um Bareilly, uh in in UP um and not really necessarily in in the 21st century maybe making as much sense in that context anymore because you have had this like hard break and this hard imposition um of a border um and so like can we remember um the ways that this knowledge used to circulate um can we think about whether there are spaces that this knowledge continues to circulate um, despite a despite or sort of within um, the new the new borders, um, and yeah, thinking about 
whether some of these forms of knowledge, um, whether people manage to sustain them um, in various ways um, post-partition and, and post-independence. And I think it's not only like the, the, the process of partitioning, um, but also like the claims of the new nation states on technologies that become quite universalizing and kind of exclude um, artisan understandings of their own claims on um, on technologies and, and, and on science. And so the state positioning itself that way, I think further marginalizes um, these stories. Um, and then, you know, in terms of what I think this is doing for Islamic studies um, and particularly Islamic studies in South Asia, um, you know, I think that there is this room to move beyond like what we think of the canon of um, sort of Islamic theology in South Asia um, and recognize that um, the, the, I guess the, the pluralism within Muslim practice in South Asia, um, the pluralism within in claims on um, Muslim practice in South Asia and, and the fact that for um, many laboring class people, um, these like elite traditions, like they're not irrelevant, right? They're absolutely not irrelevant to, to working class and laboring class people, um, but they are intersecting with um, and they are engaging with and, and, and a broader tradition, um, right? That that relates to to how people work and how they organize their lives as workers, um, and that that Islam really, you know, ex expands beyond the sphere of what we might think of as a sort of traditional religion or traditional Islamic studies, um, and into um, working realities, into laboring realities, into laboring solidarities, um, into ideas about one's class positionality, one's relationship with technology. Um, Islam expands in, into all of these spaces, um, and and it's worthwhile to, to think about what its role is in those spaces. It's such an important intervention that the book is making. And one of the things that really struck me in the conclusion was you were relaying a vignette about, I think, somebody who whose genealogy goes back to India, but they were on Pakistan's side. So there was like this nostalgia for the trade and the authenticity and genesis of the trade across mm -hmm. a previous border or non-bordered place. Right. But you also made the point that when you had asked them had they ever returned because they could return and they didn't. So it was really, I was really like struck by this kind of moment of like having nostalgia, having maybe the potential access to return, but didn't, but then still crafting something that has genealogy and lineage and transmission in the new context. Um, and I don't know, it really stayed with me in terms of kind of what you're trying to do with this book. It's like how we imagine ourselves and what that imagination was just really real and I don't have imagination in like a pejorative way but actually like legitimate um, informs kind of the way we assert ourselves in our moments and the communities we create right and the relationships we have um so yeah I, I mean I think it it kind of like connects in some ways to the verses that I start the book with and that I that I come back to yeah. um at, at the end of the book um this idea that um you know the the revelation of God and sort of God's knowledge is is present in a workshop um is present in like the knowledge of a worker um and and sort of also affects like how a worker is interacting uh with with like a capitalist or or with somebody in a different class positionality that um all of these things are are shaped by 
uh, knowledge that that comes from God and that comes from Islam. Mm, yeah, which is like a really fascinating contrast with like the dimensions of technology and modernity and the colonial state that you deal with, which is like a wonderful tension that was really kind of um, important and generative in the book. Um, I know the book has just come out and you're celebrating it and I hope you're celebrating it. Um, but um, I, know, I know what you're working on next because we met each other at the archives in Colombo in Sri Lanka, which is amazing and really fun. Um, but I wonder if you could tell the listeners like what your next kind of project or the gen- you're starting your next project, what that kind of looks like and what you're hoping to do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it it is a, a very new project for me and I'm still like working out, I guess, some of like the corners and boundaries of it because it feels very big um, at this moment. And I think I'll continue working through that for, for a long time. Um, but uh, essentially I'm, I'm studying uh, the migration and mobility of um, Pashtuns, uh, both from Afghanistan and from the Indo-Afghan frontier uh, within British, Indi- British India and, and parts of the British Empire more broadly, which is how we ended up meeting uh, in Colombo. I was chasing um, a Pashtun community that that was working in Colombo, um, and I'll actually be back there uh, this summer doing a little bit more of that. Um, but I'm looking specifically at um, laboring roles and economic roles um, that Pashtun communities took on um, within the British Empire and the ways I think that they are sort of framed by the empire as um, these like quasi not quite subjects um, and the ways that their work is really shaped by that framing um, because they are often subject to, you know, um, uh, raids and and deportations. Um, They are in some cases, you know, forced to be strike breakers because they have this like uncertain subjecthood status um, under empire and they can be, you know, rounded up or deported in in certain ways um, that, subjects full so people who are assumed to have full subject of empire um maybe cannot be um and but then i'm trying to i think and this is how the the two projects connect um what i really want to know is not just sort of like these colonial categories or or colonial status um or status under empire um but how people made sense of their work and made sense of their communities um in this context of often pretty um, extreme imperial control. Um, and so looking at texts like um, Mamas, like books of trade uh, that uh, oftentimes were written in Pashto, uh, which is a new adventure for me uh, working on that. Um, but uh, thinking about how people might have asserted their social positionalities, their engagement with work, um, their engagement with their communities, their claims on community pass um, in these diasporas um, that are subject to these types of regulations. That sounds exciting. And I was so glad to have run into you in the archives and met you there because it also forced me to think a little bit more, um, push my boundaries around, you know, Sri Lanka and the work that I'm doing there. So it was really awesome. And I'm really excited for your project. Um, And thank you so much for making time. I know we're in very different time zones. You're joining me from the UK and I'm in the West Coast of Canada. So it's um, a lot of time between us. And I really appreciate you making time to connect. And I really thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. And I absolutely encourage our listeners to pick it up. And it's available open access. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, so as of yesterday, uh, it is free um, online. Uh, you can get a PDF or there's like a really nice ebook version. 
Fantastic. So I definitely encourage folks to access it. And I think it'll be a great uh, teaching tool. Like I think the chapters would work independently and great for grad seminars and things like that. So it's fantastic. Congratulations on the book. Um, thank, thank you, you for so being with us today. Yeah. And all the best. Well, to talk with me. Um, and yeah, I'm um, looking forward to talking to you, hopefully more in the archives in Sri Lanka. In the yeah, we'll probably see each other there next. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Amanda. Bye. Thanks again. And that was my conversation with Amanda Lanzillo about her book, Pious Labor, Islam, Artisanship, Technology in Colonial India. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take care.